today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. That's both the good news and the bad news. The good news is it's some of the reasons for the strengths of our ADHD population, the creativity, the passion, the energy, but also some of the weaknesses, the brain's ability to focus on things that are boring, the brain's ability to inhibit. Yes, there's some genetic differences, there's some brain differences, but most of my work is going to be on what these environmental factors are that kind of exacerbate this genetic vulnerability. Well, hello there. I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Henry. And if you or a loved one have ADHD, then you will love today's episode. I would call today's episode a masterclass on treating ADHD using both conventional and natural methods. It's also a brilliant deep dive into the root causes of ADHD. Did you know, for example, that 96% of children with ADHD in one study were found to be deficient in magnesium? And that multiple studies have shown that magnesium and B6 appear to help improve symptoms of ADHD, like attention and hyperactivity. Did you know you can use things like blueberries to improve cognition and focus in ADHD? or that there's a role for minerals like lithium, copper, and zinc when considering how to manage attention issues naturally. Iron is another one. If your kid is anemic, they're gonna have a really hard time concentrating and we'll dive into the evidence that teaches you that this is true. There are other things you can focus on like exercise and sleep that are proven to have as much of an impact on symptoms as medication. We also go through herbal therapies for ADHD, including saffron, which has recently been proven to be as effective as a methylphenidate for managing symptoms. It's this and so much more. I can't wait to dive deeper with you. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, Chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. James Greenblatt, welcome back to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you, Kate. Good to be with you. You have literally written the book on ADHD. I'm thrilled to have you here today. And so is our entire Rupa team. They gave me all their questions that they want me to ask you. But I want to start with an important one. We keep hearing that ADHD is on the rise. But I want to hear from you. What exactly are the symptoms that define ADHD? And how would someone even know that they have it? ADHD is a neurobiological disorder. It is not a behavioral problem, a discipline problem. And it's clearly both increasing as well as pediatricians and therapists are just more aware and more people are making the diagnosis. The symptoms have to do with inattention and sustained ability to focus, has to do with overactivity, and has to do with impulse control. And it is common in both kids and adults And the constellation of those symptoms can vary. There are some individuals, as we know, we used to have a diagnosis ADD with and without hyperactivity. There are some kids that just might be inattentive or some adults inattentive. They don't have the hyperactivity. It doesn't mean that you or your child has to be hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive. But some combination of those symptoms really define this biological disorder, ADHD. Now, when you say neurobiological That, to me, seems like there would be differences in the brains of people with ADHD versus people who don't have ADHD. Is that true? Absolutely. And that's both the good news and the bad news. The good news is it's some of the reasons for the strengths of our ADHD population, the creativity, the passion, the energy, but also some of the weaknesses, the brain's ability to focus on things that are boring, the brain's ability to inhibit. Yes, there's some genetic differences, there's some brain differences, but most of my work is going to be on what these environmental factors are that kind of exacerbate this genetic vulnerability. When we think about treatments for ADHD, there's many different types. I think most people are familiar with medications for ADHD, but you have an entire book about how to use natural approaches 
either on their own or alongside traditional therapies for helping folks manage ADHD. What are some of your favorite natural interventions that you wish people knew more about? Sure. As you said, medications work, but it's a Band-Aid. They only work while you're taking the medicine. As soon as you're off the medicine, there's no effect. So Band-Aids are good when you need them, but the medicines that work are amphetamines, and those have particular problems that we try to avoid if we can. And our approach looks at a multiple number of nutritional and environmental factors that could help. The most common deficiency, the most common intervention is just a trace mineral, magnesium. That is by far the most common deficiency we see. And there's a whole range of other nutritional deficiencies that we look at based on testing. Some kids or adults with ADHD might have very low levels of vitamin D or B12. If we test and we treat, they'll do better. You called magnesium in your book, The Miracle Mineral. And there was a study in that chapter of your book where 96% of children in one study who had ADHD were found to be deficient in magnesium. Why does magnesium matter for ADHD? I'm quite convinced doing this for 30 years that there has to be some genetic difference around magnesium metabolism for those with ADHD. That was an interesting study that came out with that 96%. I would say in my practice is 100%. One mineral that I would recommend to every child or adult without any testing would be magnesium. And magnesium, as you know, is so critical for a brain function and hundreds of enzymes throughout the body. And it certainly supports many of the symptoms that individuals struggle with who have ADHD. It's a cofactor for a lot of reactions that make things like are neurotransmitters, for example, guys. It's the key to your car. You can have a great car that's full of gas, but if you don't have the key to turn it on, then it's not going to go anywhere. And magnesium is like that for a lot of reactions in our body. There seemed to be a study you cited in your book where researchers combined magnesium and B6, and it made the magnesium work better. Can you talk our listeners through that and why that might be? Sure. This is something that's been around in the field of integrated medicine for many years without a lot of research to support it, but there was that one study. In nature, nothing is isolated. Everything works together. And there are individuals where we give these magnesium supplements. They don't seem to, levels don't increase as much, symptoms don't improve. And then by adding B6, which activates the ability for magnesium to do its thing, both in the cell, it just provides that support. We've been clinically utilizing that for many years, and there are a few studies to support it. When you mentioned the keys to the car, we can also talk about the gasoline to the car because the energy currency of the human body, ATP, which provides energy for every cell that our kids need to both pay attention and inhibit impulses. I mean, that magnesium is needed for ATP as well. It just has such a broad range of activity that's essential. And again, I'm convinced both kids and adults with ADHD just have a higher need for magnesium and it's pretty depleted from our current diets. The top source of magnesium in the food supply, for those of you who may not know this, is actually pumpkin seeds. If you're not really eating a ton of those every day, it's very difficult to get from food. I run a nutrient analysis on every client that I see, and I have yet to meet a single person who gets enough magnesium just from food every single day. And I think that's why we have a population that really struggles to maintain adequate intake of this nutrient is because we haven't figured out how to eat those foods. Okay, when we talk about adding magnesium, what are ways that you advise your clients? How would they supplement magnesium and what should they look out for when they're choosing a supplement? The most important thing about magnesium supplements are most of them are short acting. You want to at least try to take it twice a day. The supplement uh, magnesium oxide is used as a laxative. We try to recommend, although there is still an effect, and it's much cheaper for those that uh, where cost is an issue, but we try to recommend magnesium glycinate, magnesium citrate, magnesium threonate as magnesium sources that can be helpful. And again, twice a day is better than once a day. Magnesium can also be lost a number of ways that are very relevant for our ADHD kids. One is the medications, the stimulant medications cause a depletion of magnesium. We would need more magnesium. Number two is stress. Stress causes depletion of magnesium. As cortisol level goes up, magnesium gets excreted more. And then one of the most concerning things as parents is the consumption of soft drinks and soda. The phosphorus, the phosphoric acid in every soft drink, whether it's natural or not, binds magnesium and makes it less available. We really have to monitor not only, as you described, what's lacking in our diet, 
but what's depleting magnesium and supplementation can be very helpful. Would a kid who's doing sports and sweating a lot and losing a lot of electrolytes also be somebody who might need a little more magnesium than a kid who maybe is pretty sedentary? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly zinc and magnesium through our sweat. And both of those have relevance to ADHD. Good to know. They make magnesium in every way possible now, guys, like gummies, powders, drops. You don't have to swallow a pill. If you're somebody at home who's thinking, I want to get my kid magnesium, but they can't swallow pills. One thing you could do would be to work with an RD to just get your kid more magnesium through food. You could start putting pumpkin seeds and chia seeds in their muffin they have every morning before they go to school that has some extra protein powder in there or give them some almonds. Almonds are a really good source of magnesium. But then like, how do you feel about the gummies and the powders and the the different forms of supplements, Dr. Greenblatt? I think the gummies often are more sugar than supplement, but Magnesium, there's also topical, it's absorbed through the skin. There's also Epsom salt baths. We always used to recommend foot baths, just a nice time to bond with your child before bed, put your feet in the tub with some Epsom salts. Magnesium is absorbed in many different ways and however we can get them in the kids, it would help. And there are products that you can mix with the water and add to juice or smoothies. I'm pretty convinced any way you can get magnesium in is going to be helpful. Love it. And this is where, guys, you can take this info and go back to your doc. Take notes if you're not listening in the car or go listen later and take notes and ask your doctor or your nutrition professional, how can I get this in the best form for me? Because if you do have constipation, for example, you might really actually want to use a magnesium powder. They make a powder called Calm. And that will not only give you more magnesium, but help you go to the bathroom more easily. There's going to be an ideal form for you and your doctor will know which one it is. Just like magnesium is a miracle mineral, you have another chapter on two minerals, copper and zinc. Why did you choose to include that in the book and why does that matter so much for people with ADHD? The research world, probably going back 25 years, has always noticed low zinc with ADHD. There's been academic studies for many years looking at zinc deficiency in ADHD. The lower the zinc, the more severe the symptoms. And then they started looking at studies adding zinc with improvement in ADHD and adding zinc to medications with improvement in symptoms. That was one area of nutrition and psychiatry where there was research to support it. But what was frustrating for me is nobody looked at why was zinc low. And it became very clear to me as I went into practice, as we did the testing, particularly the hair testing, where we saw high copper levels. And copper and zinc have this seesaw relationship. And I think we're all familiar with the lead in our water supply in Flint, Michigan and other communities. And what they did in other areas, and and we're out in the state I'm in, Massachusetts, they looked at not only lead, but copper in the elementary schools. And they demonstrated that over half the schools had toxic levels of copper in the elementary schools. And that causes a zinc deficiency. It's great that we have research saying ADHD children are often low in zinc. We need to understand why. And most of the time, it's due to copper excess. And where does that copper come from? How are these kids getting exposed to toxic levels of copper? All of our pipes for the last 100 years, water pipes are copper-lined pipes. That is the most likely source. And it's interesting. I can see the person at home thinking, yeah, I had copper pipes growing up, but I'm probably fine. (laughs) How often do you see high copper when you're checking? Right, important question. We all grew up with copper pipes. It doesn't mean we're all going to get sick. It's our ability to mobilize copper and excrete it. Those that are low in zinc actually will accumulate more copper. That's that seesaw relationship. But the individuals that I worry about almost can predict who might have high copper. And these are the irritable, angry, aggressive kids that often don't respond to stimulants. It's really very common because you need copper to make dopamine and norepinephrine. And if there's elevated copper and you give them a medication that stimulates dopamine and norepinephrine, they tend to have side effects. With that subset of kids that don't do well in stimulants, I likely would want to test. But if we can't test, we can assume copper might be a problem. And when you're testing for copper, what exactly are you looking for? Are you using serum or RBC copper? What type of test are you doing? The only test that I've found consistently accurate that was hard to talk about 30 years ago to my colleagues is the hair test. So trace mineral hair test is the most accurate, in my clinical experience, of stores of copper. It's very nice. Copper levels can be high and zinc can be low. We look at serum. 
copper. We look at a protein that carries copper called ceruloplasmin, but these fluctuate, and I don't find them as accurate and helpful by just looking at a isolated copper level in the blood. Guys, at home, if you dye your hair, that is going to alter your results potentially of a hair mineral test. But if you've got a kid at home who doesn't have dyed hair, you could look at what's called a hair mineral analysis. Tell us, Dr. Greenblatt, why is hair a good measure of minerals in the body or a good proxy? Yeah, not for every mineral, but for a few, it's been very helpful because it just reflects the accumulation of these minerals over time, both toxic minerals as well as essential minerals. And I've just found copper to be particularly reliable. It would look at kind of stores over two or three months, and it's just been a helpful tool. Yeah. And what I'll add here, guys, is in practice, I've seen people with elevated serum copper frequently who had been taking birth control for years. That is an, a known consequence of that. It can't hurt. Check you, check your loved one, whoever has ADHD, particularly if they're irritable, particularly if they're not responding to stimulants. This could be a really big part of their picture. What would you do, Dr. Greenblatt, if you did find they, a person had high copper? It's simple. We just go back to our seesaw with zinc. It is just zinc supplements at least twice a day. It's not high dose, but it's enough to eventually bring down the copper. There are genetic diseases of copper metabolism with the treatment. The medical treatment is just very high doses of zinc. There are other supplements that tend to bind copper. The OPCs, these phytochemicals and these very dark fruits are also bind copper. So we use that as well as sometimes vitamin C. Vitamin C complex uses copper. OPCs, vitamin C and zinc are our package to help bring down copper. Very cool. And we're going to get into what OPCs mean in just a second. Before we move on, when you say zinc supplementation, you said not too high of a dose. Can you help our folks at home understand what's a normal dose for zinc and would be too high of a dose? Everyone's different. They should talk to their doctors or health professionals. But for an adolescent or child, it might be 15 milligrams twice a day. For older adolescent or adult, it might be 30 milligrams twice a day if we're treating something. The caution is over 90 or 100 milligrams. And that has been shown to actually lower the copper to a significant amount where we then have copper deficiency. We treated that. We treated copper deficiency based on very aggressive supplementation. Parents treating an autistic child or adults treating themselves for prostate issues. They think zinc and they just take high dosages. It's at 30 to 60 milligrams. Zinc is best taken with food or after food. You don't get nauseous. And you don't want to take zinc by itself for long periods of time because you want to minimize any chance of creating a copper deficiency. And it makes sense that you'd want to recheck your copper and zinc pretty frequently while you were doing this protocol to try to lower your copper. Absolutely. You want to monitor things. There's a subset of kids that have very high copper that after a few months of zinc, they actually can get worse. There's a lot of copper coming out of their tissues. They get worse. And you just taper the zinc for a few days or a few weeks. They're fine. And then you restart it. When you say get worse, what are the symptoms you would notice? Just the, that same irritability, aggression, because copper is just, again, stored, not just in the hair, the liver, and lots of tissues throughout the body. As it starts coming out of the tissues, sometimes, I've only seen it a few times, but it's just important to warn there's some exacerbation of those underlying symptoms they had initially. What made you become interested in lifestyle and nutrition treatments for ADHD? Because you are a psychiatrist and you are a chief medical officer at Walden Behavioral and you are doing pediatrics for a long time. What made you get interested in this stuff? Well, I actually went to medical school interested. I thought I was going to cure the world with brown rice and kale. And then I came out nine years later as a child psychiatrist and in a private practice, 90% of what is a child psychiatrist is ADHD. And so started handing out medications and at some point, very quickly, I realized, wait a minute, let's understand why I went into medicine and started looking at, at root cause and understanding there was a literature. And in medical school, I actually did work around food allergies and ADHD. I was very involved in that experience. We called it clinical ecology at the time, and then be able to put it together to help parents with the path. And as you said in the intro, it can be done with or without medication. Yeah, not an either or, but just looking at the individual and figuring out what is precision medicine for them. Correct. How can we do it all in the best way? Brilliant. You mentioned food allergies. So I want to go down that path now. We're going to circle back to some of the OPCs and other nutrients that you mentioned in your book. But 
tell me, do food allergies and sensitivity affect people with ADHD and what should they do about it? I would say emphatically yes. And I would urge people to go back 35 years and read articles and books by Doris Rapp, R-A-P-P. She was an allergist, a traditional allergist who wrote a number of books. And the work that I've done, I've seen and try to teach others is that for children under six or seven, young children with severe behavior problems, with those kids that are kicked out of preschool, or those kids that are hitting and punching, and there's no aggression or violence at home. In my experience, those are not nutritional deficiencies. There's usually something aggravating that child's brain. Oftentimes, it's food allergies. Sometimes it can be yeast or other dysbiosis in the gut. But I really caution with these young kids, for parents or docs, putting them on a lot of supplements. Food allergies, I've seen it. Actually, had cases presented last night in our training program, people talking about these four-year-olds and just removing these food allergies. And oftentimes it's dairy and it could be gluten, but it also could be tomatoes or avocados or corn or peanuts. Food allergy testing is critical for these under six-year-old ADHD children. And how do you recommend that we test for those food allergies? They're simple blood tests. IgG-mediated food allergies are the most helpful. There's also the immediate hypersensitivity reactions, we call those IgE. Ideally, we like to do both. When I first started observing this, before I was practicing, I went to this doctor's office, and at the time, they were doing food allergy testing with sublingual drops. They would put these uh, liquid drops of these proteins, and it could be tomatoes, peanuts, or corn, and nobody knew because it was a liquid. And I witnessed a young child, they just put a few drops under his tongue. He was unable to do simple math problems. His writing changed dramatically, and he got really angry. And what they did, I was sitting in the room, it was before I was a child psychiatrist, they put drops of peanuts, peanut protein. And guess what this child had every day for his lunch since he was able to eat? Peanut butter sandwiches. He was a very picky eater and mostly ate peanuts. But not many people are doing the sublingual testing now, but the IgG blood tests, I think, have been accurate, particularly for the young kids. Do you think you would see this show up if somebody went to an allergist and got the skin prick testing that you hear about on your back or your arm? No, absolutely not. Most of that, that's the immediate hypersensitivity reaction. Those don't usually affect behavior. And the blood tests we're talking about are called delayed hypersensitivity reactions. It's an IgG. It's a different molecule that many labs are testing for. A traditional allergist is probably going to tell you that allergies has nothing to do with behavior. So funny. I would disagree because allergies are so related to histamine production and histamine production alters blood flow in the brain. And absolutely, in my clinical experience, has an impact on mental health symptoms. Ask any patient, a kid or adult who struggles with allergies will also share that with you. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll do a whole other podcast on IgE allergies and mental health. But what I'm hearing is parents should not rush and bring their kid to the allergist necessarily, unless their kid is having allergy symptoms, right? Itchy, runny nose, rashes, right? Hives, asthma. But the types of food reactions you're talking about are measured with the blood test and IgG food sensitivities. Give us an example. Like you talked about this kid with peanuts. I would assume the kid went off of peanuts and his behavior improved. Do you have a case study that you could walk us through where this you saw this work over time for someone? Well, I have hundreds, if not thousands of cases. Absolutely. The one case I talk a lot about was these four-year-olds. These are individuals, I assume it's the same, but they, you're paying a lot of money to send your kid to preschool. And when the preschool tells you they do not want your money because your child is such a behavior problem, they're kicking these kids out of preschool. And it was this particular child was mostly dairy. Just by eliminating dairy, we're able to see a huge difference in behaviors. Sometimes it's that simple. Oftentimes it could be a food allergy and the high copper. But the other signs that might help parents to know for their kids that have food allergies would be things like the red cheeks where their ears get red, their nose gets red after they eat. These are common signs. And often when you mention the runny nose and the asthma, there's a much higher incidence of traditional allergies with ADHD. You're absolutely right that it does affect behavior and allergies, as you know, is also common with low magnesium. There are lots of connections with some of the nutritional deficiencies we see with ADHD that we see with allergic 
kids and adults. You mentioned OPCs a bit ago, and I promised everyone I would not forget to come back to that. What are OPCs? And I would need you to tell us about the fascinating way that they affect brainwaves. Sure. In the 90s, I had a parent come into the office and tell me that she found this supplement supposed to help with ADHD. And it happened a lot. I just poo-pooed her. And eventually I started reading about OPCs and pycnogenol, which is pine bar. And at the time we were doing a neurofeedback in the office. An ADHD clinic, we were looking at helping kids train their brainwaves for ADHD. And it works. It's a nice program, but it takes a lot of time and energy and expensive. It can be 20 or 30 sessions. And when we started, insurance didn't cover it. Eventually, we started looking at OPCs, which are these phytochemicals found in blueberry extract, grapeseed extract, pine bark, green tea, red wine, and started looking at how it affects the brain because we had these neurofeedback machines. And we were able to demonstrate a number of kids and did a pilot study that these OPCs were able to shift the brain waves identical to what we utilize for neurofeedback protocols, which is decreasing the daydreaming brain waves, which are called theta brain waves, and increasing the beta waves, which are what we need to pay attention. We have this substance, this phytochemical that you can get at a health food store or you can get in your blueberries that was able to enhance attention and in a comparable way to this very expensive, protracted three-month course of neurofeedback. OPC. What exactly does OPC stand for? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me. Let me try to say it. Oligoproanocyanidins. I did it. Oligoproanocyanidins. It's a tough word. No wonder we abbreviate it. It seems like it's essentially like a flavonoid or polyphenol. Correct. Something that gives fruits and vegetables their really bright color. Guys, you've heard eat your fruits and veggies and eat the rainbow and eat fruits and veggies of different colors. A lot of that is because the things that give fruits and vegetables their really bright color are usually polyphenols or flavonoids or OPCs. And they have medicinal properties that are really good for us. It's not even like a vitamin or a mineral. It's this other type of chemical found in plants. And you mentioned pycnogenol, Dr. Greenblatt. What is that? That is just a specific brand of pine bark where some of the original studies were done. Pine bark is one of the original sources of OPC, grapeseed extract, and pine bark had some of the highest sources. That's where we have the most literature. One of the things that we found when we were doing these studies is that a combination of multiple sources of OPCs, combining grapeseed and blueberry extract and pine bark together, worked better than any individual OPC product. And it just makes sense. Nature has lots to offer, and the combinations over many years seem to have been more effective. How do you tell people to get more of these in their life? If you don't have ADHD, the goal is to obtain it from your diet. And the research is quite clear from dementia to heart disease, how important these flavanols are for our gut health, as well as our brain health. We've read it, green tea, blueberry. For ADHD, I'm not sure you're going to notice a big difference in attention and concentration by just getting from the diet. Supplementing with the OPCs seems to be particularly helpful. And I have had patients, both adults and kids, that notice really significant improvement in sustained attention and their ability to focus on these OPCs. And is this something that you should take a couple times a day? Ideally, it's twice a day. From my experience, many people just take it once a day, but ideally twice a day is best. And I know in your chapter on OPCs, you mentioned green tea and some of the research that was done with some of the components of green tea. Do you recommend that your clients drink green tea? Absolutely. It has caffeine for some of the kids. You might want to be careful, but yeah, green tea is a component in most of the OPC products we recommend. And drinking green tea can be incredibly helpful. And blueberries, guys, we're talking a lot about kids right now. Adults, we're going to talk to you guys in a second because everything that we're saying right now applies to you too. We have a ton of research in kids with ADHD. I would argue more than we have in adults with ADHD. That's why we're referencing a lot of these studies that have looked at kids. But this works whether you're a kid or not. Just getting more flavonoids and OPCs in your diet. Leave blueberries out. Leave them on your desk. Leave them out on the counter. Your kids will pick at them. Bring a pint of blueberries on the way to soccer practice. The great thing about people with ADHD I have found is they like to snack. If you just put something in front of them, they'll tend to eat it. Use that to your advantage and put blueberries in front of them. And then you're helping them treat their ADHD naturally 
with a snack, which is like the best of all worlds. You don't have to necessarily take a pill for that moment. You can give this to your person with ADHD through food. Great idea. Absolutely. All right. There's so many nutritional approaches to ADHD. And I'm going to have you summarize this for us at the end, Dr. Greenblatt, because guys at home, you might already be thinking, shoot, I forgot what the first one was. You do not have to remember because Dr. Greenblatt is training psychiatrists across the country and other medical providers to do this type of functional medicine approach in psychiatry that we're talking about today. I don't want you guys to feel like you have to remember all this or do all this on your own. Dr. Greenblatt, will you tell people how can they find a psychiatrist like you who is going to help them go through everything we're going to talk about today and actually pick out the parts that truly they need? Yeah, as you said, it's been um, my mission to educate uh, clinicians, pediatricians, psychiatrists, naturopaths on better ways of treating mental illness and ADHD in particular. On our training platform, Psychiatry Defined, there's a directory of individuals. And over the years, we've been having these intensive trainings on this approach for ADHD. There are a number of clinicians listed who are, I believe, available, but certainly trained in a integrative and functional approach to treating ADHD. Awesome. And guys, you can also get Dr. Greenblatt's book, which is Finally Focused. You can go through it, highlight, and then book some time with your psychiatrist and say, or your primary care doctor and say, hey, I want to implement some of this stuff. I think it'd be really helpful for me. What do you think? And you can talk through that too. But I really highly recommend seeing someone that Dr. Greenblatt has trained. They're just going to be much more fluent in this type of nutritional psychiatry talk, whereas your average psychiatrist probably hasn't learned about magnesium to the extent that Dr. Greenblatt's students have. Would you agree, Dr. Greenblatt? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there are many upcoming clinicians who are interested and oftentimes they're getting their information from Facebook or other social media. You want someone with advanced training and the good news is the field is changing. People are interested in now looking at an integrative functional approach to treating health problems, particularly mental health challenges in children. And you have a website where you do a lot of free webinars on these topics as well. Yeah, the James Greenblatt MD and psychiatryredefined.org are platforms where we have free webinars once or twice a month and trying to provide as much information as we can. Everyone's going to go sign up for that. Guys, don't feel overwhelmed. You can listen to this as many times as you want, but then you can follow Dr. Greenblatt and get this information as you need it. But I hope you're feeling empowered. Another chapter in your book is about nutritional lithium. And one of the excerpts in that book talked about how it was better than Ritalin for reducing aggression and conduct issues in some kids. Tell us what nutritional lithium is and why it matters for ADHD. It matters a lot. Not every ADHD child needs nutritional lithium, but many do. And again, it's similar to that copper, high copper. When we think of lithium, most of us jump to, it's a prescription medicine for bipolar and has side effects. And that might be true. What we write about and talk about, which has been one of the most important tools that I've had in my career, is nutritional lithium. Lithium is an element. It's been around since the Big Bang 13 billion years ago and the formation of the Earth. There's lithium in the soil. And we found that it's essential for brain function. Just like we need magnesium and zinc, we need a little lithium. And in my work, I believe there are some individuals with family histories and genetics that they have a higher need for lithium. These would be family histories of addiction, aggression, bipolar illness, or suicide in the families might have a slightly higher need for lithium. And the symptoms that we look at where lithium can be effective for ADHD is irritability and poor impulse control. These kids that can't stop themselves from either moving or hitting or being aggressive. That is where nutritional lithium, a supplement you can buy over the counter, has made huge differences in behavior. And when we talk about dose, educate our audience a bit about the appropriate dose of nutritional lithium and what the label will say. Let's say lithium orate. What's it going to say about the lithium it contains? The prescription medicine is called lithium carbonate, and that comes in hundreds of milligrams. But the nutritional lithium is usually lithium orotate, and that's the form I recommend. And as lithium is becoming more popular on the internet and social media, I found people taking high dosages, as you described, reading the labels. You want to make sure you're looking at the elemental lithium, the amount of lithium in the lithium orotate. And I recommend everybody start at one or two milligrams, very tiny dosages, 
the amount that some people might get in their food or water, and then titrate up from there. I just think there are pills available that are higher doses, 20 milligrams, 100 milligrams, and I think those are not appropriate. I recommend certainly for kids that it's just two milligrams as a place to start. Gotcha. You mentioned some people get it in their water. Can you walk us through how would someone normally get lithium and why do some people get it and some people not? If we go back to the Big Bang, the universe was formed, the Earth, I guess, four billion years ago. Lithium settled in the Earth and is different amounts depending where you live. There's different amounts of lithium in the soil that is in our food supply and mostly in our water. That is how we get lithium. If you're drinking tap water in California and I'm drinking it in Texas, we have different amounts of lithium. And the first study actually was just done in Texas. It's a big state. Different communities have different amounts of lithium. And this lithium in the drinking water has profound implications for mental illness. We've been able to, 30 years of research, show that those communities that have low levels of lithium, higher rates of suicide and dementia. High lithium in the water, lower rates of suicide. And in European studies, lower rates of dementia. It's pretty dramatic. And it's not one study. It's many studies done across the globe. The amount of lithium in our food supply and mostly in our water. Think about it. How many people have been drinking tap water over the last 25 years, which has been typically our source of lithium? I'm seeing much more lithium deficiency as bottled water has consumed our planet. Bottled water is even lower in lithium than tap water? Yeah, most of the lithium would be filtered out. Absolutely. What if someone's using a filter in their home that removes a lot of things like maybe a Berkey or a, a Brita? Would that put them at risk of missing out on some lithium as well? I don't have the scientific answer. Unlikely, like some of the Brita filters, but some of the better filters might. But people do need to be cautious and you can both test your water as well as testing. And lithium levels are best looked at in the hair the way we looked at copper. It sounds like if you find that you or your loved one with ADHD has low lithium in your hair, then supplementing could be an option for you and talking with your doctor about the appropriate level to take, but certainly not jumping to 100 milligrams of lithium or tape. Please, no one do that. Very small doses of this could be really helpful. Do you have an example of this? Yeah, many. It's been probably the most, I have a slide with just a thank you card because I've probably gotten more thank yous from parents and spouses about the intervention with lithium. Across multiple diagnoses, again, the core piece, of course, symptom is irritability. There are oftentimes both adults with ADHD that had one adult woman who came in because she couldn't get off her medications, but with her family history and with her symptoms, while we were waiting testing, I sent her home with lithium supplement. And she came back to go over the testing six weeks later and she just started crying. And I thought something was wrong, but these were tears of joy because what she described, she didn't realize how irritable and angry she was all the time to her husband and to her daughter. And the lithium just really took that away. And she was just so thankful that lithium had helped her. Wow. The supplement changed her whole relationship with not only her partner, but her kid, which I think about now that kid is going to grow up with a less irritable mom. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is going to impact her child as well. How many people at home, if you're listening, if you've just been thinking like, God, I'm so irritable lately. I don't feel like myself. I snap at everyone all the time now and I'm getting enough sleep and I'm doing all the right things, but I just can't shake this. I think whether you have ADHD or not, looking into your lithium level and treating it, if it's abnormal, could help you. Absolutely. And the family history is really important. I think if a family history of addiction, family history of bipolar disorder, even though you don't struggle with that illness, family history of aggression or impulse control, relatives that might have had problems. Those are the individuals that respond best, even though you don't have any of those symptoms yourself. It's interesting. We've used the phrase impulse control a bunch of times already on this podcast. And we use the example in kids. What would impulse control issues look like in an adult? It could be anything from spending to promiscuity to purchasing things that you know you don't need. The other part, which is not uncommon is eating. We see a high rate of what we call comorbidity, coexisting eating disorders with individuals with ADHD. ADHD associated with binge eating and obesity. When we think about it, we can't inhibit. We have that slice of peach or the candy. Now, most of us are going to want to have that second piece, 
But oftentimes with ADHD, those brakes are just faulting and they have the right genetics could get into disordered eating patterns or obesity patterns. We see it across many areas, but impulse control is a biological break and it is really frustrating and particularly a powerful assault on your self-esteem, feeling like I can't do it, I have no willpower, why can't I stop and someone else can? Yeah, I think Dr. Greenblatt and I are encouraging you guys, if you have those issues, please view them as a symptom that can be treated. And same thing with your irritability and anger. I think so many adults that I see assign some psychological or willpower reason to why they have these problems. Well, I'm just lazy or I just don't have any self-control. And they don't understand that these are symptoms of a medical issue, potentially, that they have a lithium deficiency or they have a deficiency in another neurotransmitter or nutrient. If this is resonating for you guys or somebody, please send them this podcast. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to people in the office who come in for mental health issues, this is not your fault. There's six things I could pick out that are probably going on with you. And when they come in and they see the test results, they all start to cry because they're like, oh my God, there's a reason I'm feeling this way. And then when they retreat them and they're better, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent 10 years blaming myself for this thing that I just fixed in three weeks. Everyone's different is probably the most important message based on what you just described. The testing is the only way we can really understand what's going on for you. Yeah, you mentioned testing the gut and that the gut matters in ADHD. What is it about the gut that you have your ADHD folks look at? There's a, a marker on the, one of the urine tests, the organic acid, that measures a chemical that has direct effects on neurotransmitters in the brain, particularly dopamine and norepinephrine, which is some of the core difficulties we find with individuals with ADHD. It's a byproduct of gut bacteria, and the marker is called HPHPA, and it's easily detected. And I think it's one of the single most important tests we can do in psychiatry because it's easily treated. We can treat the what we call dysbiosis in the gut. We can eliminate this chemical that causes, again, oftentimes anxiety, anger, more anxiety. Your body just doesn't feel well. It's a common thing I've said for many years with elevations of this chemical that's easily detected. You just don't feel well. How would you treat the dysbiosis? Most of the time, depending on the age and the symptoms, with just probiotics, high doses of good bacteria, good probiotics. But there are some individuals where we have to actually use antibiotics to kill the bad bacteria to prevent this from occurring for some of these individuals. And if somebody has high levels of this dysbiosis, what are some of the symptoms they'll tend to have? The most common we've seen is anxiety and agitation. And we'll throw in the word irritability again. But you just got this level of a chemical that affects dopamine and norepinephrine in the brain. You just don't feel right. Many of the adults come in because they're anxious and they're taking lots of anxiety medicine because the only thing that can help them. And then we detect this gut problem and symptoms of anxiety, ADHD, anger can literally disappear. And it's funny because I didn't say gut symptoms, which is what I meant. But do you find that people might have high levels of the dysbiosis and not have any gut symptoms at all? Absolutely. Yes. Fascinating. Some people have had them in the past, maybe severe intestinal inflammation, and then we're seeing them a few years later. Other people might not have had, but they might be presenting with just mental health symptoms. It could be ADHD, anxiety. We've seen actually someone presented a case with schizophrenia to me yesterday with elevations of this marker. It really cuts across many major psychiatric illnesses. If someone does have gut issues, maybe a ton of bloating after they eat or lots of diarrhea or constipation or gas, do you think that they should consider getting tested for this even more? Absolutely, yeah. Again, for most of the issues we're talking about, there's usually combinations. It could be food allergies and the gut issues. It could be low lithium and the high copper. The more testing, the better. And certainly the gut problems are very common with ADHD. You write about amino acids as being natural alternatives to ADHD medications in your book. What's the science behind that? The science is really simple in that almost all the major neurotransmitters in the brain are synthesized from amino acids. And these are from proteins that we have to eat. And they're called essential amino acids because we can't make them. They come from our food. Whether it's chicken, fish, or pea protein, we break it down to amino acids and we build these neurotransmitters in the brain. 
And there's been research going back years of kids with ADHD having low levels of some of these amino acids, that it's harder to get across the blood-brain barrier. By supplementing with amino acids, we just help the brain urge it along to synthesize more of these neurotransmitters, particularly dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. When you say supplementing amino acids, how does that look? It would be more than you would get from your chicken or your fish. You'd be giving supplements of amino acids, particularly we use phenylalanine and 5-HTP, which are the precursors to dopamine and serotonin in kind of a, a therapeutic intervention that can support the symptoms of ADHD, improve attention, and help with impulse control. I'm hearing like pills or powders, maybe between meals. There's a supplement that I developed for that, these dopaminergic, these dopamine precursors called Dopa Plus, which we use instead of using medications. What do medications do? They help the brain keep dopamine around in the synapse longer so you focus and pay attention better and better utilization of norepinephrine. We were able to demonstrate you can do these same things with these amino acid precursors. They're particularly helpful for adults and for some kids. And again, not afraid to use medications when they're necessary, but if we can use a nutritional supplement to mimic the effects of medication without side effects, then I think that's significant. But it was as effective. For some, not everyone, but for some individuals, it was as effective. And that was called Dopa Plus? Yes, it's a pure encapsulation supplement. I worked with them a number of years ago when we started this program because we were just for giving like six supplements to these kids and it was just too much. We just put them all in one, all the amino acid precursors plus the cofactors, the zinc, the OPCs to just support focus and attention. It's interesting, guys. I had heard amino acids make neurotransmitters before I went to med school. It really wasn't until biochemistry where on the board, you take tyrosine, an amino acid, you combine it with B6, and it becomes dopamine. And it is that simple, right? It's like those ingredients. And if you don't have them, you don't get dopamine. I think like seeing that visually, if you haven't brushed up on your biochem recently, when we say you need amino acids to make neurotransmitters, we mean it. And there's a lot of reasons that you might not be getting enough of these amino acids in your diet. The one I see, and Dr. Greenblatt, I want you to jump in here and talk about the link between zinc and stomach acid and absorption and digestion of protein. But maybe 95% of the people I saw were not consuming enough dietary protein each day. They weren't getting enough protein and therefore they weren't getting enough amino acids because amino acids are the building blocks of protein. If you guys haven't done an audit recently to see how much protein are you or your kid getting per day, I highly recommend it because most of the people you would see would come in and they'd be getting 15 to 20% of the protein they needed in a day. And sometimes just by getting them to eat more amino acids, by increasing their protein, they would experience improvement in their symptoms. No, I think that's really important. That's probably the simplest intervention, both for parents and for adults, because the consumption of carbohydrates, particularly the ultra-processed foods, which we know exacerbate ADHD, replaces the protein. And early research demonstrated kids with ADHD have abnormal glucose tolerance curves. Just adding a little protein to the meal regulated those blood sugar spikes, which were affecting behavior. I absolutely agree. The more protein that we can get our children with ADHD to eat, behavior often improves just with that dietary intervention. Let's talk generally. How can people improve their protein intake, particularly if they might not like to cook? As a child psychiatrist, I learned early on, I'm not going to sit across a child and say, no gluten, no dairy, no treats. Rather than taking away and depriving, I think the easiest model is just adding. You mentioned the blueberries for snacks, but just adding protein so you're not depriving is really the simplest model. And then they might not be as hungry for some of the carbohydrates or the ultra-processed food. Certainly in the morning, making sure it's a protein with the breakfast, whether it's peanut butter, eggs, or chicken. But that's been the most helpful intervention is breakfast protein. It seems simple. and But for an ADHD child, it could have a tremendous benefit. And they make pre-made gluten-free, vegan, organic protein shakes these days, guys, and protein bars that taste like candy, but actually don't have any sugar in them. And if you're thinking, my kid is never going to eat chicken for breakfast, or they're allergic to peanut butter and eggs, what do I do? A lot of times it's just start with more protein. It doesn't have to be a whole food even, right? Start somewhere. Get them the chocolate protein bar that has 30 grams of protein and get their brain working 
And then they might be willing to eat eggs in six months at breakfast or get them a drink that they can drink on the way to school. Maybe your kid has ADHD and they can't get out the door in time for school. You're like, that's really cute, Dr. Greenblatt and Dr. Kate. Like, I cannot get my child to eat breakfast because they're not on time. Okay, that's where you take the pre-made protein shake. You can make a smoothie and throw in some chocolate pea protein powder. It can be really delicious and fun and easy to add this stuff. And think about it as your kid needs or you need dopamine before you start your day. You cannot make it if you don't have amino acids. Give your brain what it needs to make those neurotransmitters early in the morning and your whole day is going to be better. All right, let's talk about iron. We've got a few more things to talk about. I want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Greenblatt. I have so many questions to ask you. I read in your book, 84% of children with ADHD have low ferritin, according to one study, which is a marker of iron storage compared to 18% of kids who don't have ADHD. Why does that matter? Iron, like the rest of our trace minnows, are critically important for brain function, the neurotransmitters we're talking about. And we're just, as a medical community, we're focused on iron in infancy. And then we rethink about it, iron with women later in life. We don't look at eight-year-old boys or 12-year-olds and look at iron deficiency. And there might be many causes, whether it's dietary or other absorption issues, but it's just common. It's just part of our model is testing. I don't know who's going to walk in the office who's iron deficient, but I'd hate to give a eight-year-old a medication if iron deficiency is part of the problem. It's just one of these nutrients that is not looked at in boys' who present with ADHD. People just don't think. If your kid is ADHD, just grabbing pre-made snacks throughout the day, they may not be consuming a lot of iron. Iron tends to come through more meat and prepared foods. It may make sense to screen them. Now, one study said iron supplementation in children was comparable to stimulant medications. Whether or not these kids had anemia when they gave them iron for a few weeks, the effect on their ADHD symptoms was comparable, which means similar or the same to an ADHD medication. That's wild. Why do you think that is, Dr. Greenblatt? I know you said you needed to make neurotransmitters, but can we get a little more granular? Why does iron matter in general for health? In terms of blood and carrying oxygen and brain function, it's just essential functions in the human body. And as you said, it's mostly bioavailable in, in meat products or animal products. And some of our picky eaters just eating carbohydrates are not getting enough iron. And it is that simple. I think I don't recommend everyone taking iron. That's why the testing is just critical. But there are some simple tests to look at stores of iron like ferritin and iron levels. And if deficient, treat. Iron deficiency, guys, is the number two most common nutrient deficiency in the U.S., according to the CDC. The number one nutrient deficiency is a nutrient Dr. Greenblatt mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, vitamin B6. If you're someone with ADHD, those top two nutrient deficiencies matter for you please get screened and please treat it and you are likely to feel better. Let's move on to exercise. Dr. Greenblatt, this is one of my favorite things to talk to people with ADHD about. Tell us, what do you tell your folks about exercise and is it an effective tool for managing ADHD symptoms? I think most adults with ADHD have already discovered that exercise is the best medicine for them. The tragedies are when we see people that get in an injury and they can't exercise, but we know both for depression, anxiety, and ADHD exercise is as good as any medicine. And it has lots of both neurotransmitters and other kind of neurotrophic factors that occur. And it doesn't have to be aerobic. It can be any kind of exercise, any kind of movement. What the research and clinically what I've found is actually the martial arts have been some of the most effective interventions for kids with ADHD. Is that because it's training focused attention as well, do you think? I think so. Anybody with ADHD, adults or kids, is a, I like the term variable attention disorder, not attention deficit disorder, because anybody with ADHD can hyperfocus if they're really interested and fascinated and excited about something. That's why it's really important to understand what is the individual's passion and what they like and what they don't like. You said something really important there, which is that ADHD folks can pay attention to things they're interested in. One of the things I've heard parents say is my kid can't have ADHD because they can play video games for hours and sit still. What would you say to that parent? I'll repeat it again. Think of the term variable attention disorder. That is probably a better term. Absolutely. Eight hours playing video games. I had individuals that could read history books for six hours, but couldn't read anything else for more than two minutes because they were just fascinating with this part of 
history. I have some one individual I'll never forget who couldn't sit still, couldn't do anything, but he could fish. He could sit on the boat without moving and fish. Really, I think the most important thing I've learned is this concept of variable attention disorder. Because your child can play video games, because your child might be able to cook or dance or do other creative things and focus very keenly, it doesn't mean they do not struggle with attention deficit disorder. And I think a plug here, it's so important to treat your kid if they have this disorder. And I want Dr. Greenbot to talk to you guys about this, but I'll give you my bias and then I'll let him correct me or, or tell you what he thinks. But ADHD is a disorder and it has serious consequences if it's not treated. Social consequences, financial consequences. Kids with ADHD can really struggle to make friends if they have problems with impulse control and that can really affect them for their entire lives. Adults, similarly, think about somebody who has impulse control issues. I read a study where it cost the average adult with ADHD over $10,000 a year to be under-managed, meaning in lost job opportunities, in excess medical bills, from accidents and things where they're not paying attention, you name it. If ADHD deserves to be treated in some way, and it doesn't have to be with medication, do you agree with me, Dr. Greenbaugh? What's the conversation you're having with folks who maybe know somebody who has a diagnosis of ADHD in their life, but isn't doing anything to treat it. Clearly, that's the message we're trying to bring is that helping people understand is a neurobiological disorder. There are profound strengths and gifts, and that's our goal is to help individuals, kids, and adults find the strengths. But as a biological disorder, it has to be treated biologically. And it could be with medicines. I don't have no problem if someone wants medicines, but we can also treat it with supplements and nutrients and exercise and even things like mindfulness or hanging out in nature does affect brainwave patterns. The concept is, as you said, untreated ADHD has consequences that can affect your life. There are many ways to treat it. And our primary tool has been helping people understand a functional personalized approach, but any approach to treat the biology will improve symptoms and mostly things like self-esteem and ability to do what you really want to do and achieve what you know you can. I love that. A lot of the saddest moments I've seen over the past few years were people finally getting diagnosed with something like ADHD and realizing, my God, I feel so good now that I am managing this naturally. Or, And what about the last 40 years? I struggled so much. If I had only known, right? Or if I had only done something. Guys, so many of these therapies we're talking about today are just good health practices. Please definitely talk to a doctor that Dr. Greenblatt has trained, get his book, make sure you're doing this for you or your loved one. It will really change your life. I can't let you go, Dr. Greenblatt, without asking about sleep. Sleep is such a problem for people with ADHD. We know that kids who have ADHD have increased incidence of something called sleep onset issues, just a harder time falling asleep. What are some things that folks with ADHD can do to improve their sleep? I'll leave you with another term, sleep deficit disorder. I think that just encapsulates so much of the ADHD kids and adults we're seeing. A sleep is common in almost all of our individuals with ADHD. Some of it's related to the nutritional deficiencies we talked about, magnesium in particular. My focus and emphasis is doing whatever we can to improve sleep. There'd be behavioral sleep hygiene interventions around bedtimes and screens and rituals also be nutritional interventions, magnesium. I don't like melatonin long-term, but short-term to help reset the cycle. And there are kids that might need medication because the inability to sleep and having these children up till three in the morning, particularly at a young age, is really sets a very bad course and exacerbates the ADHD. The big message is sleep has to be a priority in treatment. And beyond magnesium, are there any like herbal teas or what are some of the other things that you have seen work for folks with ADHD to help them get to sleep? I think the bedtime ritual is really important, depending on the age of the child or the adult, getting into the kind of routine so your brain and body are in sync. And then there are oftentimes there are two herbs, one amino acid, theanine and ashwagandha, two of the kind of supplements that we often use to help both adults and kids come down in the early evening and then set the course to improve sleep later in the evening. When you talk about bedtime routine, let's talk to the parent right now who's listening and they have a school-aged child. 
if you had an ideal bedtime routine to help their kid with ADHD fall asleep, when would it start? What time and what would they do? For an ADHD child, you want the kid to have control. I would be asking Johnny or Sally, how do you want to do your bedtime routine? Because then they have a say and they'll tell you and then you just work out the details to make it reasonable. They're not going to bed at two in the morning. But it would be engaging the child. Too many times, we're not listening to our kids. Our children with ADHD have just incredible sensitivity, not only to know others, but to know themselves. And because they're oftentimes seen as behavioral problems, they just don't listen. But the most important thing I could probably say is listening to your child about creating this bedtime routine. If they want to do the magnesium foot bath, that is great because that'll make them a little tired. The stories, you're not going to say no screens. I think that is challenging, but you can say it's off at 7 p.m. or whenever it is, or you have this half hour, whatever the rules are in the house, you just want the child to be part of that process. I like that. There's something called parent training as a type of therapy. You have a special chapter for parents in your book. What do you tell parents about how to relate to their kids with ADHD? Well, a lot of the parent training programs are punitive and punishment. That's still out there. I use an acronym SAIL, S-A-I-L, and it's just really based on this concept of if an ADHD child misbehaves, just understand that as a symptom, that's the S for the ADHD. And you're just accepting it's a symptom of this brain-based illness. And it's really important that then the eye is, it's okay. It's not the end of the world that they spilt their milk because they were so impulsive, or maybe the ice cream, because they wanted the ice cream cone. You're not going to yell at them. That's their ADHD. And we're really just accepting the diagnosis. And then L is letting go. This is a moment in time that your child is having an ADHD symptom. You need to let it go. It's that hypercritical, which is our natural instinct. They spilled the milk. They pushed over the bowl. They hit their sister. Our instinct is going to be to criticize. And we have pretty good research that the hypercritical parents, these ADHD kids over time, do not function well. They do worse. The most important parenting messages would have to do with listening, not being overcritical, and really understanding your child as a unique individual. And that'll help set the course towards more of a collaborative parenting style than a punitive parenting style. And when you do that and you take that breath, it, it gives you the chance as a parent, or if you're an adult yourself and you're noticing, oh man, <laughs> my attention is not good today, or right? My behavior is whatever. Taking that breath and doing that sale, but then thinking to yourself, what do I need? Did I get enough sleep? If your kid hasn't had enough sleep, their behavior is going to be worse that day. Their symptoms are going to be a bit worse. If your kid didn't have enough protein, didn't eat a good breakfast, didn't take their supplements, didn't eat their blueberries or take their OPCs, then it makes sense that their behavior might be worse. Figuring out, okay, how do I let the kid know or, or myself and say, oh, interesting. Did you notice you're underslept and it seems like you're having a harder time today? Let's work on getting you to bed earlier tonight. Will help your kid eventually learn to start to manage their own ADHD with that same internal compassion that you're showing them. Because we do find, I do find at least, that adults with ADHD who did grow up with a hypercritical parent tend to be fairly hypercritical of themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to train your kid. How will they talk to themselves as an adult with ADHD? Which is not to yell at themselves, but to go, I wonder, did I forget my meds this morning? <laughs> Why am I acting this way? Do I need to go run around for a bit? Do I need to take a walk? What do I need? How do I meet my needs? Is a beautiful way of talking about that. Thank you, Dr. Greenblatt. I want to mention here, there's a study in the Archives of General Psychiatry called Reduced GABA Concentration in Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And it was where they used spectroscopy to look at the brains of people with ADHD, and they found that they just had less GABA than their counterparts. In my practice, I have found that people with ADHD who also have anxiety tend to really benefit from GABA supplementation at night for helping them sleep short term. How do you feel about GABA, Dr. Greenblatt? We've been using it for many years, and there's a subset of individuals who do really well and some that get a little more anxious. As long as you're starting with the lowest dose and monitoring and letting parents know that you'll need the feedback as to how they're doing, it can be very helpful for some individuals. Always, guys, talk with your doc about this, but just more things for you to consider on your own personal journey. As a naturopath, I also dive deep into the herbal research at time. There are herbs like valerian and melissa that we do have some evidence for improving ADHD symptoms that are also very calming. You wouldn't want to take valerian without talking to someone, guys. Find a naturopathic doctor or an herbalist, but 
that is an option if you're looking for like, hey, what kind of tea can I incorporate in my routine at night to help me sleep? Dr. Greenblatt, do you talk about sleepy time tea or chamomile tea or any type of tea with your clients? We have routines in the hospital for our patients as well as that sleepy time or other herbs. And again, tea like the Epsom salt bath, that kind of routine is what's going to help regulate the sleep-wake cycles. What do you think about the saffron study that came out? It was 2019. They took 20 to 30 milligrams of saffron for folks every day and found that it was similar in efficacy to methylphenidate for the treatment of ADHD. Do you find that saffron works for your clients? I've read other literature and it's interesting across many diagnoses, depression, ADHD. I haven't used it clinically in my practice. I just have that information that that's written out there. I don't have the clinical experience. It's interesting for sure. And it seems to have no side effects. I figured, ah, oh, let's ask Dr. Greenblatt while he's here. You have given us so much of your time. Thank you so much. Before I let you go, I just need to know, let's talk to the person that's either newly diagnosed or their kid is newly diagnosed. What are the three things you'd say to someone in that moment where they're sitting in their car after the psychiatry appointment and they're thinking, now what? What are the three things you tell them to do to maximize their quality of life with ADHD? I think education, understand the diagnosis, understand that it's not a necessarily a disability, it can be a strength. And the more you understand, the easier it's going to be to help parent your child. Number two is that there's medications not the enemy, supplements aren't the answer. There's no right answer. But I certainly would explore some of the nutritional and metabolic things discussed in books like our finally focused. And that can be done in addition to medicine. And then I think the most challenging thing for most parents are the fight between spouses. One screaming, you got to medicate my child. And the other one saying, no way, my child's taking a medicine. And it has no bearing on gender. I've seen both sides of fighting. And my answer is always the same. We're not making a decision to medicate your child forever. We're just trying it for a couple of days for a week. I would not be afraid of a short-term trial of medicine to see the difference. My preference is to always look at an integrative functional approach, and this should be done first, in my opinion, because everything just works better, therapy, parenting, and even medicines. I love that. Thank you so much for all your time today, guys. We will have a summary of this podcast written up in the show notes that talks about all the biomarkers. Dr. Greenblatt mentioned what things should you get tested, what things should you measure if you have ADHD and you're looking to manage using this integrative psychiatry approach. We'll have the link to Dr. Greenblatt's websites where you can get his free educational trainings and also find a doctor that he's trained who can sit with you and go through this and 10 times more data to figure out the exact right protocol that's going to work for you. Thank you, Dr. Greenblatt, so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having me and I appreciate the time. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.